there's no the truth is that there's no rest um every day is work monday to sunday is work so it's either you are working on kiyoshi and putting out a fire or you're putting out a fire in your research welcome back to the founders couch this is a show about the most inspiring student founders and their intrepid journeys of starting their own thing i'm your host kathan jang for those new to the show I recently graduated from Stanford this year, where I was a student founder. My goal with this show is to shed a light on the student founder journey, inspire some of you to start your own ventures, and highlight some of the most promising startups in the country. If you like what you're hearing, make sure to subscribe to Founders Couch wherever you get your podcasts. Today on the show, we have Chukwunanze Arinze. Chukwunanzo, aka Chuki, is a current PhD student at UChicago studying physics. Hailing from Nigeria, he is the co-founder of Kayoshi a fintech company creating technologies that enables banks to provide financial services to their citizens living in the diaspora. So far, they've built an MVP for their technology, which gathers financial data on immigrants in the US, Canada, UK, Germany, and the Netherlands. They have also gotten two banks to test out their technology. Chuki has mostly bootstrapped the company, but they're also backed by Dormroom Fund, UChicago, and the Royal Academy of Engineering. They are currently trying to close an 800K seed round. Now onto the show. Let's get Chuki on the couch. Hey Chuki, welcome to the show. Sure. Thank you, Katrin. How are you doing? Good. And yourself? Good. Good. Tired from a busy week, but all good. No week is ever not busy for you. <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. Chuki, why don't we get started by talking a little bit about where you're from and where did you grow up? Oh, sure. Awesome. Um, I'm um, originally from um, Nigeria. Um, I grew up in Nigeria and um, I grew up in Lagos. Lagos is like, uh, I believe, the second most popular city in Africa next to Cairo. And um, I was there uh, all throughout. I was born, I grew up there, and I left uh, when I was 17 for undergrad. And I moved to the U.S. when I was 17. So almost uh, 10 years ago. Wow, insane. It's a full decade in the U.S. Yeah. Why don't we also talk a little bit about Kaoshi? So uh, I've given listeners a bit of a rundown about what Kaoshi does, but how would you describe what your company does in your own words? So Kaoshi, it's actually a company that is helping um, immigrants connect back to financial services or institutions in their home country. So Kaoshi connects immigrants to the financial institutions that provide services which these immigrants would actually need uh, back in their home countries. So um, you could imagine that as an immigrant, you may need to uh, buy a health insurance for your mom or your younger brother back home in your home country. And we can connect you directly through a health insurance provider like HMO. Um, you could imagine that you wanted to get a home for your mom as a surprise gift or a car. And then we will connect you to a bank back in your home country that is providing a mortgage or an auto loan. So yeah, so that's what we do. The fundamental part of it, Kiyoshi, we just connect immigrants to financial services uh, in their home country. Yeah, that's incredible. So Chuki, you're obviously studying, you know, PhD in physics at UChicago. And you actually, in one of our last conversations, described yourself as probably the first physicist doing fintech. I guess, like, what got you into the space initially? Well, I wouldn't say I'll be the first um, physicist doing fintech. <laughs> Elon Musk has the honor since he did PayPal. 
and uh, he was also from a physics background. Um, but uh, yeah, it's true that there aren't many people, um, physicists who are in fintech. Um, you would hear of physicists who are doing things like perhaps quantum computing. Um, you know, these are kind of cutting edge uh, technologies that you may find physicists in. But yeah, um, it's it's been fun. I think we bring a very, very, as a physicist, I, I bring a very unique perspective when it comes to um, uh, financial technology and the solution we offer. Uh, I would say that um, to the best of my knowledge, we are like among the very first company to leverage this idea of open banking and open finance to connect immigrants in one country to financial institutions in a different country, which is in their home country. We're the first people to do this. And I think we so kind of have some of that insight because of um, perhaps the technical background uh, from a physics uh, point of view. What we use financial um, data that we gather to do in uh, ways we use them to enable things like P2P money transfer, which I kind of uh, discussed and mentioned, which is what kind of people find very amusing about what we've done is how we've used open banking to really reduce the remittance business to a SaaS business. Uh, I think that's what is big and um, about what we've done, like the entire whole remittance business, the entire whole Western Union and all its appendages and infrastructure has all just become a simple SaaS business. And I think that's what is um, revolutionary about the power of what you can do when you're able to have access to financial data. And so I do think that the fact that I don't have a, if you look at other financial services, they are found that usually have backgrounds in the space. So it's not usually too surprising that they understand the problem because they have worked in that space. They have usually um, done something um, in that industry. You know, when you look at my own case, uh, I actually founded Kiyoshi while in graduate school. You know, I was mm -hmm. in, right, literally in the middle of my PhD and uh, Kiyoshi was kind of born. So, um, it's, so the fact that I am able to kind of really follow the space um, and really give um, solutions to the, uh, to the problems that I have, well, that I have discovered, I will give credit to that technical understanding to coming from a physical background. Gotcha, I understand now. So it's more of like the ability to understand the technical complexity. Yes, yes, and the logic. So obviously, you know, Chiki, just from, you know, what you're saying, this product seems extremely technically complex. Like, what was the thought process behind, I guess, bringing on engineers and, and helping you actually build this thing out? Very good question. So, um, you know, every, any idea that kind of solves a very difficult problem, because this has been a difficult problem, like many people have tried to crack, and up till now, there's not even been a very sustainable solution until us, you know. Um, but to do that, and to get to where we, we got to, um, it actually involved a lot of iterations. So I could show you um, Excel sheets back in 2016, where I literally had Excel sheets where I kind of logged people in. So I would you know, get people in different, someone in Nigeria wanted to send money to the US and someone in the US wanted to send money to Nigeria. And we had this Excel sheet where we were logging in and kind of matching people up. So it was very crude. So we started with that. We did marketing. Uh, by just literally just shouting out on our Facebook page and say, does anybody want to send money? And that was just simply enough and it started the whole picture. But then the problems began to arrive. Finding a match, being limited to your trusted network of your friends, who are your friends or friends on your Facebook. So and as the problem began to arise, we started thinking about the problem one by one. And so we started thinking about the technologies that were out there to solve the problem. 
Now you could imagine in 2017, Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies were reaching and rising to their peak. And you know, it felt like the most logical solution was these cryptocurrencies. And so we jumped on them and we tried to use them as kind of digital assets um, to serve as kind of a collateral for two people to do the swap. So two people didn't have to trust each other because they would just have to stake a digital asset on the blockchain. And then they will go each other, go pay each other's recipient. So I will go pay your son in the US, you go pay my mom in Nigeria. And then once we pay each other, we'll come back and we'll pull out our digital assets from the blockchain. And it looked like a great idea. And but that's how we got our name. Uh, Kiyoshi actually comes from the word Ka Satoshi. Satoshi is the anonymous inventor of Bitcoin. And so Ka was like, you know, the return, Kama, like return of Satoshi. So that's how we got the name Kiyoshi. And we were kind of super excited with your deal, but then, you know, cryptocurrency just turned out not to live up to the hype. Transactions were slow back in 2018. Uh, transaction fees started getting high, and so it just didn't work out. And so we just had to abandon it. And then one of the things we discovered during ICO, so I ended up, I didn't even of ICO, the Innovation Core Program, uh, kind of sponsored by the National Science Foundation. We did customer discovery, and we found out that even though blockchain was buzzing back then, a lot of people just knew about it, but they didn't use it or they didn't own anyone. And that was a very, very important distinction that many people in the cryptocurrency space did not, we're not emphasizing and we're not realizing that yes, Bitcoin was on the news every day and the people were talking about it, but not many people actually owned it. And that's the fundamental thing you need. It's not how much people talk about your product, it's actually whether people use it rather than just talking about it in the theoretical. And, and so that meant that we just couldn't use this. It was not a scalable solution because not many people owned it. And so that was how we kind of pivoted to credit cards. And we tried to use credit cards. Credit cards was another way. I don't know if you've ever heard of people, uh, when you go rent a credit card, um, they would put a hold for funds on the amount on your card. And then you, you, the hold would be on the, on the card until you return the card. And when you return the card, the hold will disappear, right? So we, we, we did this, we kind of created this credit uh, user back then was Square. Yeah, I remember Square. And we used Square to put holds on people's credit or debit cards. Um, and then they would no need to worry about trust. They could go do the swap and then come back and then we'd remove the hold. But it was working all fine and well, the credit card companies uh, wouldn't have any problem until one day we were in the accelerator and uh, we were talking to a lawyer and the lawyer was, this is so novel, no one has used the credit card this way, so you need to tell the credit card company what you're doing. You need to explain it to them. And we went and explained to the credit card company, and everyone was, oh, oh, this is all good, it doesn't violate any of our laws, you're not doing anything. It's just, you're just putting a hold and removing a hold, right? And then one day, out of the blue, without any notice, they just pulled a plug at us. And that was kind of painful. And, um, and they didn't give any reason. They just said they didn't have they reserve the right not to tell us why they were pulling the plug on us. And we're just high risk and that was it. So it felt like the whole journey had come to an end. But then, you know, that was towards the late 2018. And so around 2019, open banking was just kicking off in Europe. You know, the United Kingdom had just passed it earlier into December 2018. And it was becoming, forming up and gaining momentum in 2019 and then played was also fell into our radar and so we then um started exploring open banking and financial data and it turns out it worked and you could use it to really solve the problem which was the problem of trust and uh we're excited and that's how we ever ever since then we ended up in open banking space and financial data
Very cool. It's, it's interesting to see how many kind of technical iterations you guys went through to, to land on this one. You mentioned, like, you know, you, you want to, you know, be able to hire these engineers. So a requirement for that is being able to pay for them and kind of raise funding. Um, and from my understanding, you initially did some bootstrapping, right, before doing fundraising. I guess, what was your um, thought process behind, you know, deciding to bootstrap it versus, you know, going out and raising VC money immediately? Yeah, so that's a good question. So, um, so one of the first things we did that I, we had a chief technical officer. So throughout all the solutions I just described to you, we didn't have any external engineer build any of this. It was just done in-house with very low minimum. They, I wouldn't even call them real products because <laughs> they were just one pages, but fundamentally they did what we wanted. So the blockchain thing um, was just a very baby product, but the fundamental idea of putting digital assets in a kind of uh, hedge on the blockchain worked, that was built. Um, then we also did the credit cards, the idea of using credit card APIs like uh, with Square, payment processor, payment card APIs. That was also done by a chief uh, technical officer at the time. And so it was was lucky that we could get someone who could build um, minimum viable, I wouldn't even call this up to a minimum viable, this was like a, a toy, a toy <laughs> model of the fundamental technology. And then when we even then stumbled on open banking API, um, then back then, we still build this toy again, the toy model that was built. Um, but I would say that along the line, each time we did any of this, I just had to write because I was the one who did most of the designing. I actually designed the system. I don't code, uh, but I designed the system. So I had to come up with all the designs and I'll write them down. And then I handed it over to our chief technology officer who built what I would call the fundamental basis of Kiyoshi. And again, I hope someday we could have podcasts that allow people to share pictures. Uh, but you would see how it was really fun to see how we've made like a very big transition in our like user interface and our architecture. You see what we started with, because again, you know, this is new, no one had done this before. We literally first people to do this. And then what we ended up with. And so the, what we started up with was built by a chief technology officer. But then, you know, as it became clear that what we were building was a toy model and we needed to demonstrate more features, then that was when the demand for engineers came up. And um, then, you know, one of the places we went out to, which was the easiest place to find uh, quality engineers that could help us was Upworks. Um, and so we went to Upworks and we hired our first engineer there and um, got him on board. And um, it was, it took a lot of, it was really, really difficult, I would say, because the engineer was not at the beginning of the invention. So it was hard for them to really catch up. And I would even say that even up to now, it's still hard for them to really get the entire scope of what we have built. Sometimes I don't know if that's a good thing uh, because it means that, you know, you don't have to worry about them ever um, replicating or working and running away with your technology because you don't really yet know the implications of what they are building. Um, and so you clearly see that they struggle sometimes with it. But yeah, that was the origin. That was actually how we got the first engine because we got them after we had established and had a concrete idea of some level of infrastructure. So I think I would always advise that you should always have someone technically on the team who can build the baby framework first before you then look to hire the engineers. And then while you're then you can then go out and raise VC money and then you know use the VC money to sponsor the engineers to build out the architecture that you have already established by your 
co-founder, which is like the chief technical officer. Got it. That makes sense. No, that's that's very good advice in terms of thinking through your kind of thought process behind first bootstrapping and then later raising VC money. Um, so something you mentioned, Chuki, in our last conversation was that when you were pitching your company, sometimes investors didn't take you seriously because you were a student. Can you tell yes. me a little bit more about that? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, that's a, a big disadvantage of being a student founder. I think it's a big disadvantage of being a student founder. It's also being a big disadvantage maybe when you're a um, graduate student founder. American ad, um, ad love for adventure and, uh, and taking risk may appreciate more undergraduates than it would appreciate graduates. And the reason is this, so you're an undergraduate, you're young, you're very malleable. You know, you can afford to just drop out of school and then come back, you know, two years back. But then the older you get, the, the ease of making that kind of dynamic swap becomes harder. And so what investors do is that um, when they look at what you're building and they see the big picture of what you're building, the next question that hits their head is, uh, you know, are you the right team? And this has always been, especially for early stage companies, um, I didn't like this actually. I thought, and you know, this is my first time founding a company where I needed to respond. All companies I founded in the past, I actually didn't need to respond. I could easily, there were small businesses I could bootstrap myself with just like, you know, just saving some income, some amount of money. But this was the first time I actually needed funds. And it was very shocking to me how people were much more concerned, and it seems sort of make some sense with the team than they were actually with the product. So it meant that you could actually build something, you know, that was really amazing and mind blowing, but people could just not rate you because they just feel, okay, you're a student. Um, are you going to finish your PhD or not? Um, you know, are you doing this with your PhD? If you're doing this with your PhD, I don't think um, you can pull this off while doing your PhD. And they just cast it out on you. And, and so it kind of gets hard to convince um, especially serious investors to put uh, money in your company if they feel that you're a student and you're not full-time. Um, and um, we, we had that problem. And I think we still have that problem. And largely, we've actually been mostly self-funded. Um, I got pissed with the whole thing <laughs> because I've never been used to that kind of situation where people left a good idea and kind of zoomed in on just like, you know, you being a student and judging you uh, unfairly on that. I thought it was a fair uh, judgment because I was a student and I wasn't expected to just leave school if I didn't have any funding. It's okay if you give me funding and then try to say, okay, now you have to leave school because you've gotten some funding from me. But that was not the case. Most people were even just judging us even before give, talking about investing simply because we were students. And mm. um, I had to end up... Um, bootstrapping uh, Kiyoshi myself uh, with my personal funds to continue pushing on, um, you know, which we get irrespective of what people thought. So I would say it's, it can be hard. It has its, it, it has its two benefits in the sense that when you're, I think an undergraduate founder is the best founder because American adventure encourages that and they feel they have nothing to lose. Uh, at the same time, people kind of look down on them because they feel they're too young and it may be a high risk. But I think you have better chances uh, than when you're in graduate school and people start looking, feeling, oh, you're into academia. Where have you worked? 
I've been, I've been a, a self-employed all my life. So I've, every single business or every single income I've made has been income I've made with my own personal ideas. So in the small businesses I founded in the past as, as an undergraduate student before going to grad school. And so this lack of not having also any work experience count, actually counts against you. It actually counts against you, especially when you're a graduate student and when you're, not, when you're an undergrad. So these are the challenge. Yeah, that's, it's definitely um, interesting to kind of, you know, see how VCs kind of treat students sometimes or like how, you know, they do have some biases around them, expectations that you drop out to pursue your startup. So you first bootstrapped. Did you ever end up raising VC money? Well, I, I did get some investment from like some student dorm room from, yeah, like dorm yeah. room funds. But as you know, dorm room funds checks are, are like really the very, very early checks for, you know, student VCs. Uh, from student VCs and it's a, it's a good thing they do. They help you with that early cash, you know, as a student, many students don't have, how many students, you know, kind of afford to just shell out $20,000 easily. So we did get some funds from Durham Fund. We went through an accelerator program at the University of Chicago. We got 10,000. Our biggest support so far has been from the British Royal Academy of Engineering. They actually put in about 40,000 US dollars. Um, uh, to Ross, and that and this, and that was even a grant. It wasn't even any equity or anything. And this was just to support Kiyoshi because they just love the technology and the potential for solving problems with the immigrant demographic. Um, that bulk of our funding has actually come from personal funds. So as founders, we've had to raise about hundred and forty thousand US dollars. Uh, you know, to push and support Kiyoshi. And when you think about it, that's a lot. Especially mm. for founders who are mostly students like me, I've never worked anywhere. So it's really, it's a, it's a major sacrifice we've had to pull to uh, raise that amount. Uh, but uh, right now we're not raising funds. So we're now talking with the VC. Uh, we have a, a half, uh, like a kind of soft commit uh, for half a million dollars. So we are raising our kind of, uh, I want to call it pre-seed seed round of about 800,000 US dollars. And um, we've gotten a soft commit from a, a VC for um, half a million. And we are talking with another one for about 300 or 400,000. So, um, so, you know, now VCs can kind of, you can see some interest from VCs, but you can see how hard it had to take. We really had to put in our money. We really had to, to sweat blood, uh, literally, because it was really hard to get this money and then also build the platform. Uh, before we can get to a space now where people are now seeing a product, seeing that it works, seeing the idea, appreciating the big picture, and are now like, you know, saying, oh, okay, I think I can give you half a million dollars. Meanwhile, before now, it was just like, nope, you're too early for us. Nope, you're too early for us. And it's like, <laughs> you know, we obviously, we, every student is going to be early, but, you know, you have to help a student, right? Right. No, that's so interesting that, like, when they saw that you, you know, bootstrapped and you had that dedication then they were like money in the bank <laughs> that's interesting yeah, exactly yeah exactly now now you now have people wanting to take you and still you still have people who say you're, you're too early for us now they now want to see customers so and you know maybe this doesn't apply to every founder so i mean people have to keep in perspective that uh, i'm a founder of color so your your audience hopefully know but you had the, the it felt like uh, each time the bar just kept shifting so at the beginning it was oh you're too early you have no products all a powerpoint so we were like okay we're going to go build the products right we're gonna go sweat put the money in and now we build the product and now the new complaint is oh you have no customers yet you don't have much customers even though you know most of our customers are banks and now we signed up banks and now they're like oh no but you don't yet have 
end users using the platform. We want to see the platform live now. And so the, the bar just keeps shifting for what is actually required. And I'm like, you know, people forget, keep forgetting the fact that, again, we're student founders. So making these transitions from, you know, a pitch deck to a product that has cost over almost $200,000 in development, um, you know, now to then signing customers and then moving from signing customers to going live. Or in this case, our customers are banks, so they have to integrate our technology. That transition is really huge. But it's, it's unfortunate that a lot of um, investors um, talk about it like it's some kind of very, very easily attainable thing to do, especially if you're a student founder with very limited resources. Mm. So I would say that um, it's challenging as a student founder because sometimes people would, this is just keep raising the bar of what is expected uh, from you. And, but, you know, in the end, if you're just passionate about something, right, you're just going to have to make a way, you know, you're just going to keep hacking and hacking and it's going to sometimes take out blood. Um, in our own case, I actually maxed out my credit cards. That's the truth. Um, some really, really serious credit card uh, maxing out um, just to do this. But, you know, I, I believe so much in this. I know this is the, I'm so confident uh, about my conviction in this. This, this is definitely where the, financial technology space is heading into so yeah mm, that's so inspiring to hear how much conviction you have about this this product last question before the fire round um chuki so obviously you're running this company and you're also pursuing a phd in physics what's that like on a daily basis like how how tough is it to balance it's very very tough it's a painful exercise um and i'll be, you know being a student founder i want to be honest I, i'm not going to come on your show and then tell you, oh man, I'm a superman and you know, I just do this and it's just so easy. And you know, no, it's not, it's not, it's extremely painful. Um, last two weeks, I actually had a major issue with my professor. Um, I was doing, a, I was in the middle of a VC fundraising, which is what I was telling you about where we got a, a VC that's up, the middle soft commit of uh, half a million. And I was trying to close that all out. But my professor had assigned some things to me and um, I just, I just couldn't meet up. And he was so mad. And he sent this Slack message and he was like, kind of like really lashed out, like how, you know, I had to become man of to my PhD and I had to take it serious. And he's a very nice person though. It was my fault that I didn't kind of let him know I had that I was getting involved in, in this. And for me, I've always had this idea that I just don't want to create an excuse. I want my professors to teach, uh, treat me equally even though I'm a founder, so that I can graduate. I feel like if you make an excuse and say, oh, it's because I'm a founder, I didn't complete my project. It's because I'm a founder, I didn't get the experimental results, or I didn't run the, um, the computational jobs I'm supposed to have run, you never graduate, right? And you just be in a PhD, like you hear people do their PhDs for like 10 years. And I just don't want to be that person, you know? So. I felt like the way to do this was just to take the heat on, that, you know, just bounce between both worlds. But sometimes I feel, most times I feel, um, but I just, one of the beautiful things, I have a supportive professor. So I reach out and I'm like, I'm so sorry I didn't tell you because I don't want to tell you because if I tell you, you're going to be, you're going to have compassion on me and then you're going to be um, less hard on me. Um, I thought I could meet the deadline, but I didn't. And he'll be like, you should always tell me. And then, you know, and he's been supportive. So I'm very helpful that I actually have a supportive uh, professor who actually loves the fact that I'm actually pursuing entrepreneurship and seems to be so proud of it that he's then gotten the department, told the department about it, and now I'm forced to give a colloquial talk to the entire whole department about my startup in two weeks. 
Um, uh, so um, it's been, I'm, so I'm grateful that I have him. His name is Professor Abin Morgan. He does, um, he's a professor in soft matter physics at the University of Chicago's Department of Physics. Uh, but uh, it's been extremely hard, I'll be honest. I'm happy we've published, I'm a second author to a publication from his, uh, which is a work I did while working in his lab. And I'm currently working on my first author paper, which is what I'm, I've been working on. There's no, the truth is that there's no rest. Um, every day is work, Monday to Sunday is work. So it's either you are working on Kiyoshi and putting out a fire or you're putting out a fire in your research. Mm. And it's bouncing, so on my computer screens, you would see Kiyoshi stuff on some windows and literally next to it, research stuff. And um, uh, it's, it can be hard. To really bounce between, it's very difficult. Um, most days, I ask, I sometimes I'm scared. I think I'm going to lose it, and I'm just going to feel in both worlds. Um, I feel um, tired. I sometimes feel maybe I think I made a mistake doing this. I should not have done this. Um, this is a very bad idea. Um, it's a bad idea to do a PhD in physics and run a company. What am I thinking? Am I, you know? Sometimes I feel that way, uh, that, you know, most days I just try to get out of that state and feel like it's possible, you can do it, it's possible. And then reach out to some friends or family who tell me, you can do it, you can do it, and then push me out of that space. So yeah, it's tough. And I hope I can encourage others, student founders, to just always know that um, it's not bad to feel sometimes you're a failure or that you you made a mistake doing this and you know you should just have just focused and done your phd and go get a good job either as a professor as a professor in a research lab or in the industry why are you doing this why are you putting yourself through all this torture you would always have all that thoughts i had them and i'm sure other founders would and i'm hoping this encourages others to realize that they're not the one yeah absolutely it's it's incredible to to hear about like the support of your friends and family and also that professor like I think it's important to have that support network around you during these times. So let's move to the fire round Chuki. So basically I'm going to shoot at you like five quick questions and um, you'll quickly respond. How does that sound? Oh, awesome. All right. First question. Most memorable experience at UChicago? Well, that has to be, I would say, going to downtown and um, going to John Hancock. Uh, tower. It's um, and then I got to climb up to the highest floor and seeing the whole city of Chicago, and that was just beautiful. So that's memorable. Favorite class at U Chicago? Quantum mechanics one and two by Sadiq Sati. Very cool. I can imagine those are probably PhD level. So, <laughs> well, yeah, graduate level quantum mechanics. Quarantine activity that keeps you sane? Looking at Instagram at the end of the day and looking at comedians, comedy skits. Like, Keeps you laughing. No, that's important. <laughs> One word or phrase that embodies your startup journey? Struggle. And last, where do you see Kayoshi going and what are the next steps for Chuki Arinze? Hopefully Kayoshi becomes the go-to app for every immigrant's financial need in their home country. The same way every immigrant goes to WhatsApp to communicate with their family members in their home country, I want every immigrant to use Kayoshi to gain access to financial services or do anything financial in their home country. So that's the future and that's the vision we have for Kiyoshi. Not just in Nigeria where we are starting our in, but for every immigrant demographic, Indian, Chinese, Philippines, because we all have similar needs and we're all immigrants are usually breadwinners of their families in their home country. And for Chuki, I'm hoping that Chuki can 
fight it through and finish this PhD next year. Hopefully, by God's grace, I'll be going to my sixth year. I hope that that would be the end and uh, Chuki can graduate and uh, fully put his entire attention and, and energy now on the um, devoted on Kiyoshi, taking it to this, building it out for this grand vision. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. This talk was just so inspiring, Chuki, just to see you, you know, chugging along through your, through your PhD and also running this company. But I honestly wish you the best. And this was so great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much, Catherine, for bringing me on. It's my first podcast talking about Kiyoshi. So excited to go share with my friends and say, hey, hey, check out my podcast. So thank you. It's an honor to be on your show. So interesting to hear about the unique struggles of graduate student founders. Thanks again to Chuki for coming on the couch. Seeing how much he sacrificed for Kiyoshi, I'm excited to see where he goes with the company. And thanks to all of you for tuning into this episode. If you want to hear more about the challenges of raising VC money as a minority founder, you might enjoy our last episode, number 24, where we talk with Northwestern founder Ibrahim Alenor and Irawole Akande. As always, make sure to subscribe to Founders Couch wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any feedback, suggestions, questions, or any existential thoughts, write to us at founderscouchpodcast at gmail.com. And if you're all about that social media life and want to see more from us, follow us on Instagram at founderscouch. Friday after next, I'll be digging deep into another student founder's journey. Make sure to tune in July 24th for another Founders Couch Friday. I'm Catherine Jang, and you've been listening to The Founders Couch. See y'all soon.